Hey everyone, this is Chet Harms, pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to our latest sermon, a sermon about a story in the life of Jesus. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to tell you about the services that we have coming up on Easter and the week leading up to it, which is traditionally called Holy Week. The first thing we have is Palm Sunday, which this year falls on March 25th, and our Palm Sunday service is one in which we really try to celebrate who Jesus is and why it was important that he entered into Jerusalem. And because our goal is to celebrate, that service is usually a really fun and lively service for us, and this year will be no different. We'll sing some upbeat songs. My sermon will be one in which I am lighthearted, but also really try to focus on who Jesus is and why that's important. The following Friday is Good Friday, the day that the church commemorates the death of Jesus and all that it means for us. Our Good Friday service is very different than our Palm Sunday service. It is a service where we do our best to reflect deeply on the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. Our Good Friday service is centered around the Stations of the Cross, which is a traditional and artistic way of remembering the passion of Christ. We will take time to think about certain things that Jesus suffered as he moved towards death, and then we will reflect and then sing songs that align with those incredible sufferings. We'll finish that service with communion. The next day, March 31st, is our annual Easter egg hunt. And in that event, we partner with the Villebois Events Committee. Villebois is the neighborhood that we have our church services in. And we're really proud and excited to be able to partner with them again as we run that Easter egg hunt. That event runs from 12.45 p.m. until about 1.30, and there are different starting times for different age groups. There will be thousands of eggs, great prizes. It's really a great event. If you have kids or grandkids, we hope that you'll come out and be a part of that. And then the following day is Sunday, the Sunday of Easter. And on that day, we'll have what I think will be an incredible service. We do our best to blend contemporary and traditional in our Easter service. We sing old and new songs. We'll also have video and readings, and so really it is kind of a mix of old and new. On that Sunday, I'll preach a sermon about how, no matter how bad things are in our lives, the resurrection means that we can have a fresh start. We'll finish that service by decorating an old super ugly cross with flowers as a reminder that Jesus' death was horrible and ugly, but his resurrection is the most beautiful thing that the world has ever known. After that service, we will have a brunch, and the brunch is catered by Wilsonville Catering Company. They do an incredible job, and we're going to have a great meal with eggs and bacon and lots of good stuff. So now I've told you about all that we have going on, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, our egg hunt, and Easter. I really do hope that you'll come and be a part of each of those things. You can get all of the details by going to wilsonville.church Easter. That's wilsonville.church Easter. And now I hope that this sermon helps you to learn 
and live more fully for the glory of God. Well, today we finish this sermon series on stories from the life of Jesus. I've enjoyed it a lot. We've taken all these stories from the Gospel of Mark, and as I said at the very beginning of the series, it's a it's the gospel out of the four gospels we have in the Bible that traditionally in the church has been neglected or overlooked. And, and I would have told you before we started that that wasn't true of me. Like, I like all the gospels. And then as I've studied, it was like, I didn't know any of this, you know. And so it's been enjoyable for me to look at these stories and, and to really see Jesus in a, a, a new way and a new light. And I hope, this has been the hope of the whole series is that it's caused you to go, whoa, and to say, like, this, this is serious. I mean, if this story's true, then this, this changes my life. This is important for how I live and the decisions I make and, and how I view Jesus, even how I pray. Uh, if you're not a Christian and, and you've been here for this series, it's really important to as we look at these series to go like, well, should I become a Christian? Because if those things are true that they've been seeing in, in the Bible in that series, if those things are true, then Jesus is not like anybody else that I've ever met before. And today we finish with, with what I think epitomizes all of that. If this is true, then it changes it changes everything, really. It changes how you ought to view Jesus. It changes how you ought to interact with Jesus. It changes how you ought to, to think and feel about Jesus and, and ultimately what you ought to do with, with your life. And I, I don't know, maybe you're not like this, but I've been a, a Christian for a really long time. And so there's this question that I don't ask that people who aren't Christians, that this is like a natural question for them to ask. Uh, but as a Christian, you know, since I was four years old, this is, this is like, I don't think about this, but I think it's an important question, and I think that non-Christians are really right to ask it, and I hope that we've caused some people to ask it as we've gone through this series. But like, here's the question, like, why Jesus? Why follow Jesus? And, and for me, you know, like 30 years a Christian now, like, it's just, it's just like, well, because, you know, I've done it a long time. I've, I, it's been really good for me. Uh, Jesus changed my life. I, I have my hope and I have uh, my joy and I have forgiveness for all the stupid things I do all in Jesus. And so uh, there's no looking back for me. It's like this is so much better than, than I, I would have it without Jesus. That's clear. But I, but I do think that, that the question why Jesus is, is not a bad question, right? Even if we're Christians, like, why is it that I follow Jesus? And I wonder if, if you could answer that question, right? Like if somebody said, why are you a Christian? Why have you chosen to follow Jesus? I wonder if, if we who are Christians could actually have an answer that isn't, you know, some cookie cutter answer that we, that we, you know, we're told we should say at some point in our church history or whatever. But like, why Jesus? And the, and the story we're going to look at tonight really answers that because this is why. We get like the veil pulled back on who Jesus is and we really get a glimpse into his nature and we get a glimpse into the value of being in a relationship with him in a really unique way. And uh, we don't get that with people a lot, not just Jesus. I mean, Jesus lived 2,000 plus years ago and, and so we really, it's hard to get that with Jesus. We have it through this story, but I just mean people in general. I don't know if you've ever had moments where where you get to see people when they don't know that you're looking. 
and they're doing something that reveals their character, their nature, who they really are. But we don't have a lot of those moments, right? Like, like I think of, uh, and I don't even know if there's a real story, but it, I have it in my head. And, and uh, so good for this person I'm about to mention. But, but my grandpa, he's not a big talker. He's not going to, I mean, he's a talker if you get him on the right subject. But he's not going to come out and, and talk to you about how spiritual he is or how much he loves Jesus if you were to ask he would gladly tell you but but it's not in his nature to like walk up to you and say you know here's what I've been reading in the Bible and all that and uh, I, I don't know that any other time in the history of of my life I woke up almost as early as my grandpa uh, he's just, he's a depression kid like it's you know he's up before you're up right and he's probably done more then you'll do your whole day by the time you've woken up. But one day, I think it's when I lived with my grandparents after college, I, I woke up early for some reason, and I walked out to the living room, and, and there, in, in this memory, uh, is my grandpa on his knees on a chair praying. It's that moment, right? You're like, he doesn't know I'm looking, and, and he hasn't planned this, and, and now I get why he's been so faithful and so solid and, and all the things he would never tell you he is. Like that, that right there reveals his true character. And, and I knew enough about him other than that to say, well, this makes sense. You know, like, well, this, everything else I've seen, this, this right here makes sense. There's a story from the life of Billy Graham who, who recently passed away and I was unable to find this story again, so I might butcher it, but it really stood out. I've, I've told it in sermons before, but uh, there was a man who, who started preaching with Billy Graham. They were friends. They ran in the, in the same circles and, and did kind of the same ministries together, and and then all of a sudden, Billy Graham has this, this revival in L.A. I don't know if you know Billy Graham's story, but, you know, he's just a normal preacher guy and then he has this revival in LA and the newspapers pick up on it and the radios are talking about it and Billy Graham goes from like normal ministry guy to like Billy Graham you know like this iconic figure uh, in just no time at all it seems as you look at his life and there was this other guy who didn't become Billy Graham. I don't even know who this guy was, right? And, and, and so there's this story from this guy's life where he's like, I had a day where Billy's out there preaching. People are giving their lives to Jesus. I'm frustrated and frankly, I'm jealous. And I came back to the hotel room. This is the guy talking earlier than he expected me to come back to the hotel room. And he's like, I opened the door. Billy Graham doesn't know I'm coming. He doesn't know that anybody's coming. And he's face down on the ground crying and saying, God, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. And this guy said, in that moment, I knew why Billy Graham and not me. It's this moment that reveals, like, we, we go, well, that makes sense, right? When you look at the life he lived and how there was no scandal and how we, people even that aren't Christians don't look at Billy Graham and say he was in this to get rich as, as they do about most famous preachers. It's like, well, that makes sense. But this guy saw it and it was like, oh, that's who you are. And, and for the disciples, the guys that hung out with Jesus that chose to follow him really early, like there was main, 12 main guys that did walked around and followed Jesus. There had to be moments, and there would be moments after Jesus died and rose again and ascended into heaven. There were moments where they had to wonder, like, is, is, this, is this worth it? Like, who really is Jesus? 
but they didn't have to because of the story that we're going to look at today. And, and most of them willingly would go to the cross and die, or go, go to their deaths because of following Jesus, and they'd be persecuted, and they'd be tortured, and, and they'd be rejected by their own people. And, and part of the reason is, is this story that we'll look at, at today. This is the story that we call the transfiguration, and one of the problems with giving a name to a story is that all of a sudden it makes the story seem, I don't know, less believable or less important because we just label it. It's like the transfiguration, we can move on, we know it, we've heard it before. Mark Edwards, uh, who, who I borrowed a lot from for this sermon, he's an author, uh, he, he said this, maybe it doesn't strike us as crazy because we've got a name for it, the transfiguration, as though labeling it suddenly helps it make sense. And so as I read the first part of this story, especially these first couple of verses, I, I, you, you may know it if you've grown up in church circles, you, you know the transfiguration, you know what we're about to read, but really like, really just try your best to be like, whoa, you know, that's, what, that's the whole word for this series, like whoa, because this, this story, if you took away the name and you hadn't heard it before and, and you weren't even familiar with Jesus, you would be like, is that real? That would be the first question. Really? Like, really that happened? And then, and then if you were like, okay, I do believe it happened, then you would say like, wow, that's incredible. And what does it say about Jesus? And so here's what it says in Mark 2 through 4. After six days, uh, just a second, I'm sorry, I need to do something. Uh, after six days, there it is. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up on a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were walking with, or who were talking with Jesus. Now what's really interesting about this this story is how is really how Mark introduces it. And we've talked about this in the series. Mark is, is totally unconcerned with chronology. He does not care the order of events. He does not care the time frame of events. He, he just wants this story. And I joked a couple of weeks ago and said, it's like as, as Mark is writing this, influenced by the Holy Spirit, but also by Peter, who was one of Jesus' closest disciples and followers. It's like they didn't have enough paper. And, and so Peter is like, okay, how, how quickly can we tell this story? And then we'll get on to the next story. And who cares if it was a week later, or, you know, a month later or whatever. We just need to tell these stories because people need to hear these stories about Jesus. But here, we have this really interesting phrase that just jumped off the page. Mark says, after six days. That's a really interesting detail. It's like we've gone immediately, 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 immediately. After six days, let me introduce you to this new story. It's pretty clear there's a reason, right? And the reason is this this very important thing has been said at the end of chapter eight and then this other really important thing in the verse just before this, Mark 9, 1. At the end of chapter eight, Jesus says this thing, this thing that makes you say, is it worth it? He says, look, if you wanna be my follower, let me tell you what it's like. You need to be willing to pick up your cross daily and follow after me. You need to be willing to give your life to me so that you might find your life. 
You need to be willing to die for me. Everything that you do needs to be centered around me. If you want to be in my kingdom and part of my family and you want to be my follower and you want to get into heaven someday, then you need to give everything to me. Now, Jesus doesn't mean, we know this, that you're going to be perfect or, uh, you know, that there's no mistakes involved or anything like that. He's just saying, look, here, here's what it means to be a Christian. It means to be my, my follower, to give me everything, to say, whatever you want me to do, I'll do. Whatever you don't want me to do, I'm going to try not to do it. That's what, that's what it looks like to be a Christian. Now, we've, we've cheapened that in American history, and we've said what it means to be a Christian is, is you pray something. You know, you might have done it when you were two years old and forgotten all about it, but you're a Christian. Or we've said that to be a Christian means that you believe the right things. But biblically, it's, it's not so easy. It's not that easy at all. It's frankly really hard. It's, I believe these certain things. And so, I will give everything that I am to Jesus. And I know I'll mess up and I'll know I'll still be disobedient at points, but the goal and aim of my life is to follow hard after Jesus, to just live completely and totally for him. That's what it means to be a Christian, a Christ follower. And out of that, it's awesome. I mean, uh, it's, it's a very small price to pay because we give him his life and then, and then really we get a new life that's much better and we have joy and peace and, and hope and forgiveness and a, a future in heaven and we get all these things that, that are so much better than the life we were living before we gave our lives to Jesus. So it's a great trade. We trade a bad life for a good life, but it's still a trade nonetheless. And a trade that could that could cost us our lives. It does, in fact, cost many people their lives all around our world today. And throughout the history of the church, it has cost people their lives. And it would, in fact, cost almost all of these disciples whom Jesus has said this thing to their lives. They would actually die because they would choose to follow Jesus instead of giving in to what the world was telling them to do. Well, is it worth it? You know what I mean? Like, is Jesus, is your kingdom really worth all that? And before they can ask that, before they even probably think to ask that, in Mark 9, 1, this is what it says, and he said to them, truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Now this becomes a really controversial verse in in the history of the church. For no reason in my mind it becomes a controversial verse. But people people will say, well, was Jesus wrong? Because they connect this to the return of Jesus. And they say, "Well, well, Jesus didn't come back before those people died. And so he must have been wrong. Or other people say, well, this references the... The, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the day the church began, or this references the death of Jesus and all the power that was involved in that to, to forgive sins and to offer us a relationship with God, or this references the, the resurrection of Jesus or the ascension of Jesus. And all of these things are great and they do show the power of God, but none of them happen six days later. This very clear chronological statement by Mark who's saying, look, Jesus said, this incredible thing some of you will see the power of the kingdom some of you will actually get a glimpse into how worth it it is to follow Jesus while you are still living and six days later it happens it's so clear and it's weird to me it's 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 honestly kind of weird like a lot of things you look at in the bible and it's like well that makes sense that's controversial but this especially in the book of mark 
is so clear because he's just like immediately, 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 oh, you need to understand that this happened just some six days later. And another gospel who's, who's less concerned, I, I guess, with making this really clear, this connection, it's like about eight days later. It's like about eight days later. But Mark, as he writes in the influence of Peter, who's at this event, this transfiguration event, is like it was six days later that we got to receive, just a few of us, got to receive the promise that Jesus had promised that we would see the power of the kingdom of God, the worthiness of the kingdom of God, how worth it it is to give our lives. And think about this moment. I mean, in just this moment, you got three of Jesus' disciples up there on this mountain with Jesus. He said, let's go up to this mountain. And I'm not a hiker, and uh, I don't like the idea. Like, I would want to reason, but he's just like, let's go. They climb up this mountain, a high mountain nonetheless. And, and man, they're probably thinking, is this worth it? Like, this might be the moment where like, eh, Jesus, we'll just be down here. We'll catch you later. But like, they go up this mountain with him, and they'll find out just so shortly that it's worth it because all of a sudden, they're sleeping we see in another gospel they're sleeping and they wake up and there's Jesus according to Mark dazzling white whiter than anything that we could you know imagine like you get your downy bleach or whatever and like like this is supernatural right that's what Mark wants us to see this is a supernatural event in Matthew 17 2 it says his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. In Luke 9, 29, he says, his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Have you ever seen like a, a good lightning storm? Like that, that's something, you, it's a supernatural feeling, right? I mean, it's incredible to see. I was in Minneapolis when I was uh, 11 years old and man, like you're like backing away from the windows because it's, it seems like it's going to hit you and, and Interestingly enough, when I was uh, teaching baseball lessons right after college, I was at this batting cage that was made of metal, and this lightning storm's coming in, and the lesson is outside a pitching lesson. So we come in, and like two minutes later, I'm t- lightning hits. I think it hits the actual building. It was the most incredible sound, like uh, just Boom, but a lot louder than that. The microphone would not like me yelling boom as loud as this sound. And the lights go off and the parents of the kids are like, good thing we came inside. You know, like, I mean, it was incredible. And we've seen the power uh, of lightning and, and I've heard quite closely the power of thunder. And, and this is the type of thing that Luke associates it with. He's glowing like lightning. He's brighter than like the sun, according to Matthew. And Mark says he's, he's whiter than anything that, that you can imagine on this earth. Now what's just so fascinating is, is there's, we've seen in the series, if you've been paying attention, you've seen that there's these deep, and I didn't know this before we started to do the series, there's these deep connections in the book of Mark to this guy named Moses that lived in the Old Testament who led the, the Jewish people out of the oppression of the Egyptians who wandered in the desert leading these people called the Israelites for 40 years. I mean, this was, this is a big guy in the Old Testament, one of the things that would happen with Moses is he would go into this tent, and we'll, we'll catch up on this in a second, he'd go into this tent called the tabernacle that, that went with the Israelites wherever they went, and when he'd come out, he was glowing, 
because of the, the greatness of the presence of God, because of the brightness of the presence of God. And what's so interesting and striking in this story is that while Moses glowed because God shined upon him, the light comes out of Jesus. And it's so clear what Mark is saying to us, right? Like, this is the glory of God. When the disciples who were there woke up from their sleep, they saw Jesus. And when they saw Jesus, they saw the glory of God. Theologians use this term throughout for things that we see in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, called the Shekinah glory. It's not a biblical term, but it's the, it's the visible glory of God, the glory that you can see. And here in this incredible moment, Jesus is glowing with the glory of God because, because he is God. He is God who became human, and in doing so, he veiled that deity But in this singular moment in his history, the disciples were able to see the power of the kingdom of God because the veil is pulled away just for a second. It's like, oh, that's who you are. Oh, that's who you are. This makes sense, right? Because of all the stories we've seen, like, oh, Oh, you walked on water because that's who you are. Oh, you fed 5,000 men plus women and and children, 10, 15, 20,000 people because that's who you are. At your baptism, the voice came from heaven because that's who you are. You were tempted in the desert and angels ministered to you and wild animals showed up because, because why? Because that's who you are. You are God just happened to veil that deity with flesh and walk around in our midst. The disciples have this moment like I did with my grandpa and like Billy Graham's friend did with him, like, oh, oh, that makes some sense now. They are able to see the power of the kingdom. Sam Storms, another author, says his true inner identity and character as son of God incarnate suddenly bursts forth for others to see the divine glory within irradiated Christ's whole being affecting even his clothes. When Peter, James, and John were privileged to see what they were privileged to see was the eternal pre-incarnate glory of the Son that for the period of his earthly life had been deliberately obscured and hidden behind the veil of the human flesh. The veil of finite human nature is momentarily lifted to provide a glimpse of his infinite deity. Oh, that's who you are. I get it. It all makes sense now. And if the glowing and the brightness and brighter than the sun is not enough, right? Like, like Luke adds to the detail that, that here's Moses and, and Elijah in glorious splendor. So Jesus is, is shining so brightly that even Moses and Elijah, these guys from the Old Testament, they're shining in his glory. And by the way, these guys are really important figures in the Old Testament for a variety of reasons. Interestingly, they're seen as the deathless ones. There's no grave site that the Jewish people go to and say, well, that's where we believe history tells us that Moses and Elijah buried. Elijah just went up to heaven. Moses climbed up on a mountain, and then we just don't really know. He's just like kind of 
done. And, and so they're kind of the deathless ones, so that makes some sense here. They, they are really connected to mountains in the Old Testament. Their story ha- has big mountain scenes, but even more, this is really important, they are representative in some ways of the entire story of the Old Testament. And I believe what Mark is saying is, look, 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 look. If you want to understand who Jesus is, you need to understand that the entirety of the story of the Old Testament points to him and his coming and his glory and his death and his resurrection and all that he would do for humanity. This is an incredible moment. This is a woe moment. This is a big deal. This is like, this is, this is eye-opening. This is like, they've been following this guy Jesus around. They kind of have an idea that he's the promised one who would set things right for their people. They kind of get that. They know that he's, he's like intimately connected with God in some way and like that he's able to produce miracles because of this connection to God. But all of a sudden, the veil is, is pulled back and, and they get to see Jesus when, when maybe Jesus didn't know they were looking and all of a sudden they see that this is deity in human form. And their response is where we really begin to see like this, this, is, this is worth it. They, this is like how they kind of know it's worth it. Because here's what Peter says. And remember, this is Peter helping Mark write this book, right? So this is, this is like, he, he's like, here, here, okay, and here's what I said. And he's not proud of it. You can see that in, this, in, in what he records for us. Like, okay, here's what, I, here's what came out of my mouth, you know? Like, I, I, this is a big moment, Mark 9, 5, and 6. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't, notice this parenthetical. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. That's very fascinating what happens in the life of Peter here. Like, he just is so impressed, so shocked, so scared that he says the first thing that comes to his mind. If you read about the life of Peter in the Gospels, this is kind of his, in his nature and character. He's very uh, extroverted. He, he thinks with his mouth, it seems like, like he talks and then he figures out later whether it was a good thing to say and a lot of times in the New Testament it was the wrong thing to say. And here, I mean, this time he just admits it, like we were scared, so I just, just said something, you know, like, you've been there, I don't know, I told you already in the series, I met Robin Williams once, you know, and it's like, uh, I, don't, I just like, hey, I said, actually, I could tell you what I said, you're Robin Williams. <laughs> yep. <laughs> like, like, I know, that's kind of his response. I, I, I know, I was, I've been me. Um, and that was kind of my moment, right? Like, Peter's like, let's build these tabernacles, but here's, here's, what's, here's what's so cool, to me is that even in his babbling I think God uses this moment where he doesn't know what to say because he says he says these two things I think in this one sentence he says two things that kind of show us that like even though he doesn't know what to say he kind of gets it he gets what he's experiencing he gets uh, he gets the moment is big right because there's there's just two main things and the first is like he knows he's in the presence of God. He understands that, and, and the reason that we know that is because he says, like, let's build, let's build these, these tents. And, and if you were to go to the Old Testament, the same 
word can be translated as tabernacles. And I've already mentioned this tabernacle, this tent that that the people would build in the desert and God's presence was there. And, And so Peter, even in the midst of like not understanding it, not really grasping what to say or how to respond or what, what would you do, right? Like you wouldn't know what to do. He, 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 he at least, I think, he at least gets that he is standing in the presence of God. I didn't know what to say, but I knew, I knew in that moment that Jesus was God. I knew in that moment, I did, I got it, that I was standing in the presence of the creator of all. But this other, this other thing that I think just really resonates, right? Like, he understands that that's where he wants to be, <laughs> right? He doesn't run, because I, I mean, that's kind of like, that's what I picture. You wake up, it's bright, like, oh, that's a dead guy, you know, like Elijah and Moses, like, let's get out of here. Like, that's, that's what I kind of picture. If you're camping and that's what happens, right? All of a sudden, a super bright light, you can't see a thing, it's like there, and it's nighttime, you run. But Peter says, let's stay. Let's stay. He understands that he's in the presence of deity, but he also it is babbling kind of stupidity, understands that he doesn't want to go anywhere. That is where he wants to be. In the presence of Jesus, who is God. Do you see how that, for these disciples, answers the question? Like, is it worth it? Like, Jesus' speech, they don't really get it. They just think he's a military conqueror. And hey, you may have to give your life for me. Well, that doesn't make sense because I thought we were gonna win this battle with the Romans and you were gonna sit on a throne and I was gonna like be your right-hand man. Like, man, like that doesn't, like, what, what are you talking about? I might have to die for you. Like, that doesn't make sense. Is that worth it? Like, if you're not gonna be a military leader, if you're not gonna set things right, if you're not gonna kick the Romans out of here who are oppressing the Israelite people, like, should I really be following you? What's the purpose of all this? And this glimpse of who Jesus really is says to Peter, like, no, 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 wait, this is God, and I wanna be here with him. It's a huge moment, and it's built upon. In the next verse, Mark 9, 7, uh, this is, this is kind of how this goes. It, it, it just adds to it. Mark 9, 7, then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. Notice this. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. So we get this heavenly voice coming down in a cloud, which, by the way, reminds us of Exodus 24, 15, and 16. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai, for, this is an interesting detail too, six days the cloud covered the mountain and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. This is the moment where the Israelites become the Israelites. They kind of go from being this giant family to a nation. They go from being this people group whom God interacted with to being the people of God and their tr- God's treasured possession. He gives them the Ten Commandments. This is a moment in Israel's history that they draw upon when they think about like what separates us from the rest of the world, what makes us unique. It's that God showed up on that mountain and it was crazy and he gifted us with his grace of the law and his presence and all of these things. And here the cloud shows up once again. 
And the voice comes out and says, listen, listen to my son. Listen to Jesus. Is it worth it? Yeah. Not only is it worth it, but like you should. (laughs) Because we have this heavenly voice saying that we should. In the Old Testament, clouds are a symbol of God's presence, his protection, his authority. In the New Testament, clouds are associated with the return of Jesus. Notice that with the return of Jesus, when Jesus comes back and makes everything right. And I just say this, the transfiguration teaches and it testifies. It teaches the deity of Jesus and it testifies to the fact that following him is in fact worth it. Now, you may not know this, but Peter, all right, he, he actually pens a couple of books in the New Testament, First and Second Peter. And uh, in Second Peter, he's an older man, probably about to be killed. And, and he writes this letter that, that kind of feels like an old guy writing to people he really cares about. It's pretty different in, in kind of how it feels. And, and there's, this, there's these people who are trying to, to twist the gospel and, and to lead people astray in their faith. And, and Peter is kind of an older, wiser man. says, look, I'm dying here. But I'm going to keep telling you to follow Jesus with your entire lives, to keep living for Jesus, to hold the truth of Jesus out in front of you. I'm gonna keep telling you because it's absolutely worth it. And and, in this gospel, he's like, look, it's worth it because someday Jesus is gonna come back. And when he does, like, you'll fully grasp the power of the kingdom and, and, and like what it can bring to your life, how important it is to be a part of the family of God, to be a Jesus follower. You'll get it someday, I promise, I promise, I promise. In 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18, he draws upon the transfiguration to say, let me tell you why. Let me tell you why I know it's worth it. I'm dying for this thing, and I'm going to tell you why I know it's worth it. And here's what he says in 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18, writing to these people and saying, look, please, 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 just keep living for Jesus. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Can you see the profound impact on him? That he would call it the sacred mountain? Like that's the name he gives to this mountain. That that it just seemed like a hike. Right up until he saw who Jesus actually was. And he understood the goodness of being in his presence. And he's looking at these people who who are asking like, man, there's persecution all around us. Like I don't know. I just don't know if I should keep following Jesus. I don't know if it's worth it to give these things up I'm having to give up. I don't know if the pain and the struggle and the hurt is worth it. He says, it's worth it. It's worth it. I promise. Not because I heard it, but because I lived it and I experienced it. I just, I just want to say, through Peter, I think Peter wants to say to you 2,000 years later, like if you're not a Christian, if you're like, I've rejected this thing, like, I know that you, I just know, and I don't say this like, hopefully not arrogantly, like, It's just my experience that a lot of people 
who don't become Christians, who don't want anything to do with Jesus, they give these reasons like, well, I like science, or, you know, I've met bad Christians, or uh, like, just we were talking about this this morning, like, uh, you know, what about when Christians have, have killed people in the past, you know, uh, like, like you, you give these reasons, you do, and, and that's, that's fine, that's great. But I think a lot of times if you're not a Christian, you give those reasons because it's a lot better sounding than what really is inside of you. And what's really inside of you is this idea that it's just not worth it. Right? Like even if it's as as simple and as shallow as like, well, all those Christians go to church on Sundays and I don't want to deal with that on a week in and week out basis, right? Like, because I'm giving up one of my weekends and, and there's that. Or, or I mean, even more though, like, 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 well, I party on the weekends and the Christians I know don't. And I don't want to give that up, right? Or, or like, I hang out with a bunch of people who hate Christians or are really anti-Christian. And, and I know, like, if I become a, a Christian, then, then I'm going to lose some of my, my social status or or my social currency like that's going to happen and I don't want to I mean like I'll give all these other reasons but I really it comes down to that and I'll just I'll just tell you that the guy who experienced it this guy named Peter writing through Mark and then writing himself uh, he, he just says it's worth it and he, he suffered more than you'll ever suffer for being a Christian and he's like look I expect I experienced it. And it's hard to argue, right, with experiences. I mean, you could try to say that that you don't think Peter really wrote this. I I would disagree, and I would say evidence says that he did. But, like, you you can try to argue all those things. But if he really did experience this moment, and he was dying for the Christian faith, and he's still, like, begging people, you should do it too, then this moment must have suggested that it was absolutely wrong worth it and and then there's there's us who are christians and, and we should be able to answer the question question like why jesus the, the answer why jesus is because jesus is god who came in human form and, and and the the experience of the presence of god now and for eternity is is better than anything else like his presence is better than anything else and i can tell you that just from the moments i've had where where i feel like the veil of heaven is pulled back and i i'm able to experience jesus and there's nothing quite like it And so we should be able to answer that question, why is it worth it? Because Jesus has got it, and, and I want to be in his presence for eternity because it's going to be absolutely incredible. I talk to my daughter about heaven sometimes, and, and man, I, I think a lot of parents are just bent on keeping their kids alive, and, and I want my kids to be alive, but I'll feel a lot better about them dying if I can know that they go to heaven someday. And so we've made a big deal out of Jesus, and we made a big deal out of heaven, and we talk about how we're going to swim in, in uh, chocolate swimming pools, you know, and, and uh, we're going to, we're, it's going to be awesome, right? And G, uh, Hazel, not Jesus, Hazel just the other day, I'm like, hey, sweet dreams tonight, what are you going to dream about? And she said, eating chocolate cake with Jesus, you know, and, and that's heaven, man. Like, and, and, and here's what I tried to just impart to her. All that other stuff about heaven's going to be great. Like, I'm looking forward to chocolate swimming pools, I'm looking forward to playing basketball with people who are in the NBA that's, that got into heaven with me to see where I stack up. Like, I'm looking forward to all of that. 
I really am. But what makes heaven heaven is that it's like the sacred mountain and I will be in the presence of the God who chose to save me. And everything I gave up to be there will be absolutely worth it. And so I know we should be able to answer the question, but also I know some of you on a day-to-day basis are saying, like, is it worth it to give this thing up or to do that thing or to give that part of my life to Jesus? And I will tell you, I will tell you it's worth it. Because I I just say, like, when I was 17, that's when I really got serious about Jesus. I frankly, like, I had friends saying to me after that moment where I realized what a, I I was a Christian, but I realized at 17 what a horrible sinner I was and how amazing Jesus' grace is. And I've been different ever since. And I had friends who would say to me, we miss the old Chad. They would say to me, we miss the old Chad. Where's that guy with the dirty sense of humor? And, like, where'd that guy go? We enjoyed that guy. And I've given a bunch of stuff up since, I, since that moment, not done things that I would have done, chosen to do things that I never would have had to do that I frankly didn't like very much, and absolutely all of it's worth it, even if just for the small moments on earth where the veil is pulled back and I get to be in the presence of my Savior. But even more, this guy named Peter, he'd say, yeah, it's worth it. It's worth it. Because I experienced a little piece of heaven and I died, and I'll tell you, he's sitting in heaven going, oh yeah, it's definitely worth it because this isn't a momentary thing. I get to do this forever. And so if you're asking, like, is it worth it to just move further into Jesus? It's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. Let me pray for you. Jesus, I thank you that I've experienced you, and I pray that all these people who are here this morning would experience you, and I, I pray, God, that that those who listen online would experience you like not every person, I just, the experience of you is so good. And I pray that they would experience you, but sometimes, God, it takes a leap of faith for us to experience you in greater ways. It takes us saying it is worth it even if I can't see it, even if I don't know why it's worth it, even if, if I have never felt it, it's worth it. And so I pray, God, that, that people just because of this passage and what Peter said and hopefully through my testimony that, that God, people would make a decision to say, okay, I don't know how, but it seems like it's worth it and they would give their lives to you or they would give more of their lives to you. God. Lord, for those who are, are questioning, is it worth it? I pray that you somehow, some way would speak into their lives and, and, and you would make it so clear to them that it is God. Let them just get a glimpse of the power of the kingdom. God, let them just get a little piece of that sacred mountain. Jesus, I pray that just everybody would just give their lives to you that aren't Christians and that those of us who are would, would give more of our lives to you all the time because we know it's worth it. We know it's worth it. For those who are making excuses in their heads now or who will make them later, whether it be about giving their lives to you for the first time or, or just holding things back, like just holding on to things that they know you want them to give you, God, I pray that you would tear down the excuses and they would at least see the real reason deep in their souls, like they don't think it's worth it. And then, God, I pray that they would realize it is. Work through my words, God. Let that story of your transfiguration, let that moment even impact us now, God.
pray these things in your holy name. Amen.